Open your Bibles with me to Acts 14. Our text this morning is Acts 14, verses 1 through 7. In the previous passage, we saw Paul and Barnabas driven out of Pisidian Antioch by devout women and leading men of the city. This morning, we're going to pick up the story with their first missionary journey in the next town, Iconium. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray. O good and gracious God, into the dry and thirsty wilderness of our world, you come with streams of living water to quench our thirst, to cleanse our wounds, to refresh our weary souls. Open our eyes to your presence everywhere. Unstop our ears to hear the challenge of your word. Loosen our tongues in songs of praise and fearless witness to your justice. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, with the Holy Spirit, one God, forever. Amen. Acts 14, verses 1 through 7. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to, and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. All right, uh, just watch out for the candles. There you go. Yeah, let's, let's get this out of your way, guys. Heads up, Ollie. That's good. Thank you. All right. Did you know that kids sometimes, especially when they're talking to each other on the playground, you guys sometimes stretch the truth just a little bit. Maybe a kid will exaggerate a story about how, how high they can jump their bike off of a ramp. Or maybe they'll claim to know some secret code for a video game that nobody else knows. But when there's a chance to get some attention and maybe to be thought of as a little bit special, kids are sometimes willing to tell stories that aren't completely true, and I'm not picking on you guys, you know, grown-ups do that too. And so I teach my boys to remember that you can't believe everything you hear, but once in a while, you get surprised by what's actually true. Like one time, Calvin came home telling us something his friend said. His friend said that his dad came home one day with a million dollars. Of course, me, knowing that kids stretch the truth sometimes, 
I, I reminded Calvin about that, and Calvin was like, yeah, you're probably right. But that kid was a pretty good friend of Calvin's, and there came a day when we took Calvin over to his house to play. And I was kind of amazed when we started driving up this really long, winding driveway through a little forest up to the top of a big hill. And when I saw the house, I began to think, uh, you know, maybe that kid was telling the truth. <laughs> because the house was huge. And when we learned from his mom that the dad ran a large company, things suddenly began to make sense to me. That million dollar check, or that million dollars was probably a check for finishing some massive job. And so the kid wasn't lying. He was not even stretching the truth. His house and his mom proved that the story was true. And something like that is happening in the passage that we just read in Acts. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were speaking the news of Jesus boldly to the people in Iconium. They were telling the story of how Jesus had come to forgive our sins and bring us into God's kingdom. A lot of people, though, thought that story was a lie at worst or at best too good to be true. And so since Paul and Barnabas were telling a story that was hard to believe, it says that the Lord, it says Jesus himself bore witness to the words of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, in other words, Jesus was proving that the story was true by showing people his power. We aren't told exactly what happened, but we know from elsewhere in Acts that Acts that sick people being healed and blind people being given sight and even people being raised from the dead were ways that God proved that his messengers were telling the truth. The good news about Jesus is such good news that even today people still have a hard time believing it. But this message isn't just people telling stories to get attention. And Jesus proved proved it back then uh, to give us good reason to believe it today. We have these stories in Scripture to prove to us that Jesus is who the apostles say that he is. And because the stories are true, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, guys. Thanks. You can go back. If you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. <clears throat> As Sam said, our focus this morning is on verses 1 through 7. You know, in the previous passage, we, we saw Paul and Barnabas driven out of Pisidian Antioch by the, the persecution that was stirred up there by the Jews who objected to their proclamation of Jesus as the Christ, as the, as the Messiah, as the long-promised Savior and we're told that as they went, as they, as they left that district, <coughs> they shook the dust off their feet against them. That symbolic act was uh, meant to show that, that those who were rejecting Jesus were, were judging themselves to be unworthy of eternal life. And therefore, 
their blood was on their own head, so to speak. Paul had done all that he could do. He had proclaimed the gospel clearly. And the decision to reject Jesus was on them. But we must not misunderstand that act. We must not think that it's saying more than it is, because it is certainly not meant to suggest that God is now done with the Jews. That from now on, he will only offer salvation to Gentiles. We, we know this because when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Iconium, we're, we're told that they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And this is important because it brings us to our first point this morning. It, it highlights for us both the necessity and the sufficiency of Jesus for salvation. Think first about the necessity of Jesus. Being Jewish was not enough. That's, that's clear in the passage. Again, think of, of the, the previous text. It was the devout women and the leading men of the city who stirred up the persecution against Paul and Barnabas. That means that it was the, it was the Jews, the good Jews, devout Jews, Jews who, who took their faith seriously and who held to the traditions of their fathers. These are the ones who stirred up the persecution against Paul and Barnabas. But even though they were devout in their faith, Paul says that in rejecting Jesus, they were judging themselves to be unworthy of eternal life. And that's what shaking the dust off his feet was, was all about. He was, he was declaring that, that reconciliation and salvation were available in the person of Jesus Christ, but they had rejected it, and therefore they had not joined in that salvation. Now this is a theme that we have encountered again and again and again in the book of Acts. And it's a theme that we will continue to encounter again and again. In fact, it's one of the main themes of the book. The, the necessity of believing in Jesus Christ for salvation is at the heart of this entire message. We, we saw it in the very first sermon recorded in the book when, when Peter said on the day of Pentecost that there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. That's what we confessed a few Sundays ago when we said that Jesus is the only Redeemer of God's elect. And when you hear that, when you, when you see that, that, that Jesus is the only Christ, that He is the only Messiah, He is the only Savior, when we see that Jesus is the only Redeemer of God's elect, we must understand that it has profound consequences for every one of us. It means quite simply that if you have not received and rested upon Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you are now presently under God's judgment. It means that, that if you have not received Jesus Christ as Savior, then you are presently an object of his wrath. That's what Paul says clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. And not only are you under his judgment and, and an object of his wrath, but as Paul goes on to say, as we, we heard it even in the text that was used as our assurance of pardon this morning, we are, you are utterly without hope because you are separated from the only hope of sinners. Apart from Jesus, you don't have a, a meager hope. You don't have a, a slim hope. You have no hope at all. Apart from him, you will one day be condemned and sentenced 
to eternal death. That's weighty. And it's, it's not hard to understand why, why this is not a popular uh, topic of discussion today, even in the church. But while we are sometimes reticent to speak of these things, we must understand that they are of the utmost importance. These are not merely matters of life and death. These are matters of eternal consequence. It is eternal life and eternal death that is at stake. And this is why the, the authors of Scripture speak so clearly. And it's why I say to you today, if you today when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to bow before Jesus and confess him as Lord. Today is the day to receive and rest upon him for your salvation. For in him, in his blood, there is the forgiveness of sins. And by his resurrection, there is, there is justification and, and peace with God. This is what is made available to us through him. But understand that apart from him, there is only wrath and fury. And so every one of us is called to receive and rest upon him and to receive life in him. And we can say that. We can, we can say that this offer is made not to people generally or to, to some people, but to all people. Because the second thing that we see here, the, the second thing that we see in, in Paul's going to the synagogue in Iconium is the sufficiency of Jesus. Yes, we, we see his necessity. We see that there is no salvation apart from him, but we also see his, his sufficiency. We see that all who call upon him will be saved. Whether Jew or, or Gentile, whether slave or free, whether rich or poor, whether man or woman, it matters not. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's what sufficiency means. That, that yes, Jesus is necessary for salvation, but he is also sufficient. To have him is to have everything that you need. And sufficiency is the reason that, that Paul goes back into the synagogue when he arrives in Iconium. God isn't done with the Jews. Many of the, the Jews in Pisidian Anarch had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And Paul had, had shaken the dust off his feet against them. But God was not done with the Jews. When, he arrived, when Paul arrives in Iconium, he goes again to the synagogue. And there he preached. And many Jews believed. But so did many Gentiles. And that's the point. Whoever believes is saved. Jesus is sufficient. Faith in him is the alone instrument of our justification. The gospel is not for one group, for one people, for one tribe. It is for everyone. And so as you sit here this morning, you can know uh, that, that if you believe, if you receive and rest upon him for your salvation, you will be saved. There is nothing that you must do to prepare yourself. It's hard for us to believe that. It's hard for us to, to accept that. We, we think that there's something we must do to qualify ourselves. But the scriptures are clear. Jesus is not only necessary, he is sufficient. That's why a few weeks ago we spoke of both the broadness and the narrowness of the gospel. It's, it's narrow in the fact that Jesus is the only Savior, but it is broad. And that it is for everyone, any and all who will receive and rest upon him will be saved. He is all you need. The old hymn says, the only fitness he requires is that you feel your need of him. 
So this is where we begin. It's a, it's a theme that we've touched on again and again. As I said, we'll, we'll touch on it again and again because it's, it's in some sense the point of the book of Acts that Jesus is the Christ. He is the only redeemer of God's elect and now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to receive and rest upon him for your salvation. For if you do, you will receive in him eternal Life, an eternal inheritance, undefiled, unfading, imperishable, Peter tells us. That is the good news of the gospel. But like Sam was saying to the kids, it's a, it's a gospel that can sometimes be hard to believe because it, it seems too good to be true. And so that brings us to our, our second point this morning. And the second point is simply this, that Jesus himself validates this gospel. How do we know it's true? Because Jesus himself tells us. We, we confessed him to be our prophet this morning in our, in our confession of faith. He makes known to us the will of God for our salvation. That's exactly what we see going on here. Now, obviously, Jesus served as a prophet during his earthly ministry when he was physically on earth. His, his words and his, deed, his deeds bore witness to uh, the testimony uh, of God's purpose for our salvation. But, but notice that, that the story of Acts, it is the story of all that Jesus continues to do even after his ascension. It's, it's what he continues to do through his apostles. Jesus is at work here. And Luke makes that explicit in this passage. Jesus is here making known to us God's will for our salvation. Look again at verses 2 and 3. As it happened in Pisidian Antioch, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and, and poisoned their minds against the faith, we're told. But Paul and, and Barnabas didn't give up. On the contrary, Luke says, so they remained. And, and we'll come back to that so in just a minute. They actually remained because they were facing opposition. But for now, notice, notice what's going on here that they continue to boldly speak for the Lord. And as they do, as they speak, Jesus speaks along with them. Jesus bears witness to the word of his grace. How? By, by granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now here we're not told what those signs and wonders are, but we've, we've seen them uh, described in detail elsewhere in the book and, and also in the, the Gospels. We know the kind of things that were done, things that are, were clearly evidence of God's power on display. God worked not just miracles, but, but signs and wonders through the hands of, of his spokesmen so that people would know that the words that they were speaking were not the mere words of men but were the very words of God. And I am convinced that this is one of the most important apologetic points for our day. If I asked you why, why do you believe that this Bible is the very word of God? Why do you believe that, that this Bible is our, our, our highest and final authority in all questions of faith and practice? I suspect that, that many of you would, would struggle to give a, a detailed answer to that question. You believe it, but maybe you would struggle to articulate exactly why you believe it. And if I pressed you, you would, you would probably have to admit that, that you believe that the Bible is the Word of God because your parents taught you that the Bible is the Word of God. 
And if not your biological parents, then, then your parents in the faith. The, the people who God used to lead you to faith, whether it was your biological parents or, or someone else, they taught you to regard this book as the very word of God. The question is whether or not that is a good answer. And I suspect that most of you have your doubts. Most of you, while you you would struggle to say more, think that you ought to be able to say something a little bit more weighty and persuasive. If that is what you think, I want to suggest to you that believing because your parents taught you is actually a really good answer. Believing because your parents taught you is is a good answer because they believed for the same reason. Their parents, again, whether they're biological parents or their, or their spiritual parents, taught them. And, and their parents taught them. And their parents taught them. And that's important because there is an unbroken chain of one generation teaching the next that the Bible is the very Word of God. And that chain goes back to the very first generation that heard the apostles preach. Well, that may still seem unpersuasive to you. After all, can't a lie be passed down generation to generation just as easily uh, as the truth? Well, maybe. Some would say probably, even definitely. And, And I'll grant you that. But if that's true, then the question is just kicked back one level. And the question becomes, why did that first generation believe? Why did that first generation who taught their kids believe that this is the very word of God? What started the chain? Did those first hearers have good reason to believe that what they were hearing was not the mere words of men, but the very word of God? And what this text tells us is the answer to that question is unequivocally yes. They had good reason to believe because Jesus himself bore witness to the truth of the gospel being proclaimed in his name. Jesus bore witness. How? By granting signs and wonders to be done by the hands of those whom he had sent. Those signs and those wonders are what I have often called public validation. You see, God does not speak through human intermediaries. He doesn't speak through apostles or or through prophets without publicly validating them. God publicly validates those who speak for him before those to whom they are speaking. He always does this. He's always done this. He has always demonstrated that this is the person that you are supposed to listen to. And because God does this, because God publicly validates those who speak for him, we can know that that first generation had very good reasons to believe that the gospel of Jesus was, in fact, the very word of God. But this gospel wasn't something Paul had made up. This gospel was the gospel that God himself had revealed in the person of his son. And because that first generation had good reason to believe, so do we. For we learned it from our parents, who learned it from their parents, who learned it from their parents, going back to that first generation. Generation. And so if you are here this morning and you have never believed and you, you wonder if this gospel might be too good to be true, I want to say to you this morning, you have good reason to believe, not because you saw the miracles yourself, 
but because we have the testimony of those who did. We have the testimony of those first eyewitnesses. And let's be honest, that's how all historical knowledge works. The only reason we know anything about the past is because we have the testimony of those who were there. And we have the testimony of those who were there. We have the testimony of those who saw the works done by the apostles' hand and therefore knew that the words that they spoke were not the mere words of men, but were to be received as the very word of God. You have, we have, good reason to believe. And that's important if you've never believed. But, but understand, that's also important if you have believed for as long as you can remember. I don't remember a day when I didn't believe this gospel, and I need to know this. And I need to return to this again and again, because the truth is we all have those moments of, of angst and doubt. We all have those moments when our immediate experience is, is causing us to wonder. Is, is shaking our, our faith. Our, our immediate experience seems to be out of accord with the, the truths that we have believed. When we see the brokenness in this world or we, we experienced firsthand the, the suffering that is, that is all too common, we, we, can, we can wonder. We can even doubt. And in the face of such questions, it is good for us to know that our faith does not rest in midair. It is not wishful thinking, but that we have good reasons to believe that Jesus himself, through the hands of the apostles, has borne witness to the truth of this gospel. We believe because God himself has told us that it is true. And there is no better foundation for our faith. This then brings us to our Our third and final point, Jesus himself has borne witness to this gospel. Jesus himself has has told us that the the faith handed down through through the apostles is, in fact, his truth. But notice, even though Jesus himself bore witness to the validity of this gospel, the results were divided. What does Luke say? Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. That's... Hard to believe, isn't it, that, that Jesus himself is proclaiming the truth, and yet the results are divided. I think it's helpful for us to see this. It's, it's helpful because it's a reminder to, to those of us who have been entrusted with the gospel, and that's everyone who's believed it. Everyone who has, who has received the stewardship of this gospel, who has the opportunity to, to share it with others, whether it's their own kids or their family, whether it's their friends or their neighbors or their, or their co-workers, everyone who has uh, the opportunity to share this gospel needs to be reminded that a faithful proclamation of the gospel does not guarantee a positive response. Again, this is, this is something we know, but it's sometimes helpful to hear it said out loud. Because again, we can, we can bear the weight, we can bear the, the burden of, of people not receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ as if it was our failure. But, but here we see Jesus himself witnessing together with the apostles and still the city was divided. And therefore we should not expect it to be any different when we share the gospel with others. That some do not respond does, does not necessarily mean that we were unfaithful or, or unclear. Of course, we could have always done better. You will always be able to think back over, over any time that you have shared the gospel and, and think, I could have done that better. 
I've never once left this pulpit and not thought, you know, I could have done that better. It is, it is true for all of us. We are flawed people. And our, our proclamations of the gospel are always flawed, always tainted by, by our sin and our, our weakness. But if we have in good faith proclaimed the gospel, if we have declared Jesus Christ as the, the only redeemer of God's elect, and if we have called people to repentance and, and faith in him, then we should not carry the burden of their unrepentance. Our task is to plant and to water. It is God alone who gives the growth. But there's something else that I want us to see here, just briefly. We need to see that the, that the divided response of the city means that the apostles have to decide whether they will continue to preach the gospel there in that place. Now, don't misunderstand. They, they don't have to decide whether they will continue to preach the gospel. <laughs> I want us to see that the, the divided response of the people did not compel the apostles to adopt a new strategy. <laughs> they, they continued to preach the word. We saw this earlier in verse 3, that when the, the city was divided against them, they, they continued to preach. In fact, they continued to preach because the city was still divided. And even when they were driven out of the city, we're told in verse 7 that as they went, they continued to preach the gospel. The, the strategy of, of preaching the gospel is a non-negotiable. It is at the foundation of everything that we do. These are the only words of eternal life because Jesus is the only redeemer of God's elect. We don't have to decide whether or not we will continue to, to preach the gospel. But we do have to decide whether we will continue to preach the gospel here and to these people or whether we will go move on and, and share the gospel with, with others. And what we see here is that... that there's not a clear answer to that question. Look again at, at verses 3 and 6. Com compare those answers. As we noted earlier, when the, the Jews first stirred up op opposition in Iconium, the apostles chose to remain for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord because of the opposition. <laughs> but later, when they learned that some in the city wanted to, to stone them, they fled to Lystra and Derbe. And this shows us that we must not always can continue to preach the, uh, the word to the, to the same people when they have made clear their intention of rejecting it. There is uh, a time uh, when it's appropriate to remain, and there is a time when it is appropriate to, to move on. Now, moving on doesn't mean that we stop desiring the salvation of certain people. Not at all. But we do not have to continue forever preaching to those who have long refused to listen. It is sometimes right and good to look for open doors and receptive ears. But how do we know? That's the question, right? That's the question everyone's asking. You, you want a formula. You want three steps to, to figuring it out. And I can't give you that. It's not as easy as simply discerning a physical threat. Here, when... when uh, Paul and Barnabas hear of the physical threat made against them, they move on. But remember that when Peter knew that the, the Jewish leaders wanted to arrest him and put him to death, he went right back into the temple courts. It's not as easy as, as identifying a, a physical threat. Discernment is hard and it requires spiritual wisdom. And so what we must do is pray. We must ask what God would have us to do. Because there are times when God wants us to, to simply keep sharing the gospel with those resistant people again and again and again. And those will usually be the people closest to you. The people who your lives intersect with regardless uh, of, uh, of their ability to listen. They're sort of trapped. God has woven them into the fabric of your life. 
There are other times when, when it is right and good to, to move on. I can't give you a formula, but I can say this. You must always continue to proclaim the gospel. Whether you stay or whether you go, whether you, you continue to press the gospel with these people or whether you, you seek riper fruit, so to speak, we must always continue to proclaim the gospel validated by Jesus himself, for these are the only words of eternal life. Here we have words necessary and sufficient to save any and all who will believe. And because Jesus has entrusted these words to us, because he has made us ambassadors and, and ministers of this one gospel. That is why we call it good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray now uh, that you would indeed allow this gospel to, uh, to take root in our hearts, to dwell richly in us, and to bring forth an abundance of, of righteousness in our lives, all to the praise of your glory, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.